0: This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, online at reformedforum.org. This is Christ the Center, episode number 76. Today we discuss Thomas Aquinas. Welcome to Christ the Center, Doctrine for Life, a weekly conversation of Reformed Theology. My name is Camden Busey, and I have with me today Jeffrey C. Waddington, who's teacher of the congregation at Calvary Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Ringoes, New Jersey. He's just emerged from his Fortress of Solitude to join us this morning <laughs> to discuss uh, an interesting topic. Hey, Jeff, it's great to Good you. morning, Camden. He wanted a little uh, humor, levity <laughs> in our introduction, so I provided it for him at his expense we also have uh, James Dalzell, who's a Ph.D. candidate at Westminster Theological Seminary. It's great to have you on as well, James.
1: Uh, good to be here. I, I don't get a middle initial.
0: I don't know your oh, O-E. Yeah.
1: <laughs> St. Jeffrey got his middle initial. <laughs> well, Jeff's
0: published. I mean, you will be published. So, a...
2: Hey, you know what? The James and I brought a gift for you. It's oh. a Johnson's Floor Wax for your head.
0: Oh, yeah, thanks. <laughs> thanks.
2: I'm sorry. I I'll share it with both
0: of you. Ooh! <laughs>
2: <laughs> Yours is by choice, I believe. Ours is not.
0: You know, it's a genetic protest. I do. Yeah, you know, it's half <laughs> by choice, half. As I'm holding on to some semblance of a uh, of pride here as I shave my head. Do you
2: know that our brother, good brother Nicholas Batzig, has also? He's not, losing his hair too. He, no, it's uh, he's cut it short. So I call him. <laughs> I, I call him Fuzzy Nick. Levels, um, Fuzzy Nick's at the General Assembly of the PCA in here, Orlando. We'll be
0: speaking with him. I'm I'm hoping to chat with him on the phone soon. He's going to him's relay some information to us. He's conducting several interviews for us down at uh, the GA, and we're very excited about that. Uh, but today, uh, we're not talking about the PCA. Uh, we're going to be talking about Thomas Aquinas. Uh, might surprise some of our listeners that we're going to speak about him, uh, the celebrated Roman Catholic that he is. Uh, but he has uh, a lot of uh, important things that he has taught and written about that we need to take note of. Uh, we're going to speak about him, uh, and so I guess as we begin, I'll throw it over to James, who's doing PhD studies in the area of uh, God's simplicity. Been reading a lot of Thomas lately. Uh, maybe could you give us just a real brief overview of some basic things about Thomas's life, who he was, and why he's important. Some of the areas he wrote in.
1: Well, I mean, I, th- I, I should first of all, I should first of all say, um, a great book in this way is the first, is the opening chapter of Ralph McKinnerney's book uh, on Thomas Aquinas. The okay. shorter paperback, uh, U- University of Notre Dame Press, mm. is, is worth looking at if you want a well-written, brief biographical introduction.
0: How Stump on that? I enjoyed hers. Is hers a little more While dense. St- yeah, stump. Yeah. Stump isn't doing even the a, beginning. the she does a little biography at the beginnings briefly. I haven't read it. My okay. guess is it's excellent. Which, which yeah.
2: book of hers is that? Eleanor
0: Stump. Uh, it's. I well, know I who the title. You know is. the Rutledge yeah. volume. Yeah, the Rutledge those volume, those volume of Thomas okay. Aquinas. She's,
2: done, she's also been involved with the Cambridge Companion.
1: Yeah, which would probably be in yes. Thomas Aquinas.
0: So those are some several introductory books, but uh, For, well, who was Thomas? Why, sh- why should we? Why should we even study him? And that's
1: and that's a question that um, I've probably only began to appreciate uh, in the last year and a half. When I when I began looking into Westminster Seminary five or six years ago, thinking about doing the THM in church history, I I had a meeting with Carl Truman, uh, just sort of exploring and feeling out the field. And I I asked Carl uh, before before coming. What should I read to prepare myself uh, in church history and he's, he said, well, he said, probably the best thing you could do beside the surveys of church histories is really focus on on three figures uh, around whom most of church history revolves or is, or is in dialogue with and i and he identified those as as Augustine, Thomas Aquinas, and John calvin, and he Amen. said. And he said, if you're going to look at three figures in the history of, in the, history of the church, uh, three thinkers in the history of the church, look at Augustine, Aquinas, and Calvin, and uh, automatically my, my Reformed inclination uh, resonated with Augustine and with Calvin, obviously. Sure. But the easy one to overlook was Aquinas, and I remember thinking at the time, well... I'll, I'll look at I'll look at the first and the third, and if I get to Aquinas at some point, I, I'm sure that'll have some interesting things to offer. Right. And I went through my THM, and and th- because I looked at the 17th century in my work, I didn't even then spend much time looking at Thomas Aquinas. And it wasn't until I became more interested in the doctrine of God uh, that I began to look at Aquinas, because it seemed like all of the history of the Church since that time, even up to. The modern issues in the doctrine of God were were uh, in dialogue with Thomas, either for or against, or mixed in their feelings of Thomas. Right. Um, and as a and knowing him as a Roman Catholic thinker, also was I have to say was was put offish to me. Um, it wasn't that compelling uh, to get into the study of his life or his thought. Now, I would want to say
2: that. Uh he is a Roman Catholic but this is prior to the reformation and so therefore he's part of our heritage as well
1: but at the t- but at the time i don't i don't think i had categories right. uh, defined well enough to make that I, I kind of distinction i tend to
2: say to people that uh, uh, prior to the reformation uh, and <clears throat> and this is really true of thomas because he's a conversation partner for most of the Major theologians of the Reformation. Even your topic, if for your THM, was John Owen, right? Yeah, that's right. And so Thomas would have been a major conversation partner. Maybe not in the area you did your research right. in, but uh, certainly
1: in the background was Thomas's work. And yet, the interesting thing with Thomas, when you read the the Reformed Scholastics, who also were who also, in their daytime job, were uh, Puritans, uh, <laughs> they they. They clearly have read Thomas and imbibed a lot of Thomas, but unless you know some of the major contributions of Thomas himself, you won't always, you won't always realize how extensively they're interacting with Thomas. And it was just a few weeks ago I was reading Richard Muller who, who made the comment uh, that, that uh, Turretin, Francis Turretin, is basically, is basically Thomistic, or we might say a modified Thomist, um, in his outlook, and yet, for certain exigencies, he can't openly avow himself uh, a Thomist. And I think, in a certain sense, we were in the same position today. There are there are real liabilities uh, when you when you show any appreciation for Thomas Aquinas, because you're you're immediately having to to qualify what exactly uh, that appreciation is. But well,
2: but the Carl Truman would surely be correct that in a familiarity with Thomas. Uh, is good because he's so. Anybody who's cracked one of the volumes of the Summa Theologia, or or the Summa Contra Gentiles will see that he's thorough. Uh, yeah, but, but that, of course that's part of the scholastic method.
0: Well, that's important to understand. I mean, as we begin uh, Thomas's uh, context. Um, he, you know, for those interested, he was about 13th century, or he was 13th century, born in 1224,
1: 1225. Can't exactly like that.
0: pinpoint when he was born, but he died in 1274. He was a, uh, eventually became a Dominican monk. Uh, his family, what were what were the origins of of, of that story?
1: Well, he was born. It he was he's Italian, mm-hmm. born in Monte Cassino. Um, his family wasn't wasn't royalty, but they were again. Royalty? I don't. Uh, they weren't royalty, but okay. they were aristocrats okay. in a certain sense. I I don't. I mean, obviously, I don't know the politics of 13th century Italy. That may come as a surprise to you guys that that I don't know the political situation. <laughs> I'm, I'm really Italy. disappointed. <laughs> we're just falling apart here. Hey, where's, no, my,
2: where's my but, copy of uh, Norman Geisler's book on on Thomas? Maybe he can help us. But
1: they, uh, anyway, as it was, his fam his family uh, were aristocrats, so they were. They were they were well to do. Uh, I think he he grew up in a family with means, um, and he was sent at an early age uh, to study uh, in I believe a Benedictine. Is that right? That could be right. Mm-hmm. In a That's bened- right. In a Benedictine monastery, and that was his family's his family's commitment was to the Benedictine order, um, and they would like to have seen Thomas. Uh, if that was the direction he was going to go, that sure. they would have liked to have seen him join the Benedictines. But because of because of certain uh, political situations in which the the monastery where he was uh, studying as a as a boy as a child came under attack, um, in in a battle uh, he was with, they had to go and rescue him for his safety and they pulled him out of there and then later on he was sent to study under. Albert, Albert the, the Great, Albert the Great, Albertus, Albertus Magnus. Magnus, right? Yeah, I think um, on
0: uh, against his parents' wishes, he went and joined the Dominican Order.
1: Well, yeah, un, under under that tutelage, he came into uh, under into contact with the uh,
0: Dominicans.
1: Right. the The thing that sent that set the Dominicans off from other from other monks is they weren't um, they weren't withdrawn from the world. In fact, they were a they were a teaching order of monks, and so they would they would travel all over Europe. Uh, teaching in the universities, Uh, it wasn't the isolated uh, kind of anti-social monastic lifestyle that we tend to think of.
0: Sometimes the nickname is, I think, Dominic Canis or like Hound of the Lord, where they would preach and they prided themselves on the preaching and teaching uh, involvement. And, and so they were very involved, uh, you know. And the externally. order, and the
1: order would move them around, and so you right. wouldn't take up a permanent teaching post in one place. You might go and train future priests for three years in one place, and then you would, then the order would move you off to maybe another, maybe even a whole other country. And because it was a because of their vows of poverty, uh, they, lived, they lived on the charity and goodwill of others, and they, they traveled on foot. So every—I mean, to, it's, it's hard to imagine. Thomas died at 49. Uh, if you look at all of his writings, his commentaries on Aristotle, his commentaries on uh, Boethius, on Lombard sentences, um, these, are, these are not small— uh, volumes. He's do and, and to say nothing of his, the two summas, and also or, all of his disputed questions. Or biblical commentary. Or his commentary on scripture, Jeff, which was. How many,
0: you only got 10 years left on that? Eight years? How many, how many more years do you have left till you finish all that? Uh, you mean 49 <laughs> years? I've
1: got four years,
2: okay. Oh, okay. Four years. So, I resonate with his nickname, of course, which is Dumb Ox. <laughs> uh, that's what he was called.
0: Right, and it's hard to know if that was because of his size or it certainly wasn't because of his intellect.
1: Right, and that's, I mean, the impressive thing is he's moving to all these different teaching posts. I think twice, <clears throat> excuse me, twice teaching at the Sorbonne uh, University of Paris uh, in his early career and, at, and really near the end of his life teaching there again. Mm. So prominent teaching posts, uh, voluminous writing uh, with, with a lot of formal instruction of students um, – no, look, look. and traveling on foot all over Europe yes. between these locations, which were months at a time, and wear and tear on the body. Now, is there any
2: truth to the story that after when he died, his body was boiled, and they preserved his bones? <laughs> that that's the story that that that, uh, that he died en route to a a council, right? And then he they, they boiled his body to preserve the bones, you know relics.
1: Well, if he was boiled or not, I don't know. But he he was later condemned and his bones exhumed and removed from uh, wherever they were placed. And then, of course, later he was sainted. So, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: I, well, I thought the Catholic Church never changed its mind uh, Oh, we'll leave that one alone.
1: sorry
0: Well, now you Seems mentioned his, his involvement At the various universities and teaching Now this is an, an era of history In which the, the universities came to prominence uh, They were started, I believe By uh, monastic orders um, they, came, they came To be very important in the education Of uh, ministers and others That would go into the church But also there was the rise of an intellectual Discipline called scholasticism now, right. what is scholasticism, and what was uh, Thomas's involvement with it, and how did it impact the way he taught his, his students?
1: This is, I, mean, I, I would defer some of this to Jeff. I would say, in short, scholasticism is scholasticism is a method of inquiry. Um, it's it's a way it's a way at getting at truth through a series of through a series what of questions, an, questions and answers. Right. Uh, so, in a certain sense, you could you could have people with with uh, completely opposite opinions that both conform to the scholastic method. In and, fact, we have a
0: whole era of theologians we call Protestant scholastics. It doesn't yes. mean that they necessarily held to all the theology of the 13th century, but they used right. the same method.
2: What, what you've got is, remember, what we're expressing is probably the, the uh, based upon the work of Richard Muller uh, and others uh, before him, like uh, Heiko Obermann and David Steinmetz. Right. Who have, who have brought clarity to our understanding of scholasticism? There was a time, you know, going back to the 19th century where scholasticism was understood to be committed to an Aristotelian philosophical foundation. Now, uh and that's why you often would find
0: was, a time when w- was not. <laughs> yeah, there was a,
2: <laughs> and uh, and so there was a You will find, even in some of our revered heroes, theological heroes, disparaging comments about scholasticism, which reflects an older understanding, which a couple of things. One, it assumed that that, uh, commitment to the method, which scholasticism as a method merely means academic uh, disputation. Yeah. Right. Okay. Uh it would be like today we know the difference between a, an academic book and a popular book. Uh so that's one way to understand it. But well, they also- used
0: to used to start a, they might have a class where they would schedule a debate where they have this disputatio or the, right. and then they would have the debate uh then afterwards or a day later he would invite his students back and then they would have like the resolution or they right. would discuss pros and cons and they would come to a, a fuller understanding of the issue
2: but also in terms of our understanding of what scholasticism was there was a, there was a failure to ult- in in the 19th century primarily uh theologians there was a failure to distinguish between medieval scholasticism and what would later arise uh, that we know as, as Protestant scholasticism in both its Lutheran, Reformed, and Arminian, remonstrant uh, forms. Mm. And that's why we it's it's important to point out that scholasticism does not tell you that that someone was a scholastic tells you little about their
1: specific theologically believed, right? uh points. So how how that how that works out for Thomas um, is is just in the, it's just in the way that he actually uh, tries to get after theological truth. So he'll he'll pose a question, um, and he'll usually begin with his adversary's viewpoint. And, and I should add, I mean, I should say at this point, anyone who's read Thomas will generally agree that he he studiously avoids straw men when he yeah. when he presents when he presents the opinions of those with whom he disagrees he tends to present the strongest version possible. In fact, some I, sometimes, I, I've, I was just talking with someone a couple of weeks ago uh, at our home church in California, who, who was saying that when, when, he, when he reads Thomas Aquinas, uh, that sometimes when he disagrees with Thomas, he feels like Thomas has given him uh, the best reasons uh, for which to disagree. Uh, and sometimes that,
0: he might be providing better cases than his opponents.
1: Yeah, that's right. Sometimes he right. presents better reasons for his opponents than his reasons had, had, than his opponents had thought of for themselves. See, what you're,
2: what you're really saying, and this is, gets at what Carl Truman used to say, or it still says on him. He still, he still, uh, uh, would be that the, one of the benefits of reading Thomas is that it makes you think. Right. And grapple with the various issues that are raised. And he would make the same kind of argument, I guess, for Carl Barth as well. Uh, not agreeing with the theology, but being impressed with the theological mind at work.
1: I would say I'm more impressed with Thomas Aquinas than Karl Barth. Well,
2: I'm just, I, no. I, I, I would be as well, uh, although I wanted to clarif- I was going to seek clarification. Were you saying that you were more impressed with Thomas than Karl was impressed with Thomas? Oh, Karl no. Barth,
1: I mean? No, no, no. Karl, okay. uh, no, I'm more, my, I, I'm, I I'm, you personally, up, I? <laughs> I'm personally more impressed with Aquinas, and for this reason that that Aquinas is strives for clarity. Uh, no one has ever accused Carl Bart of striving for clarity. Um, <laughs> and I don't think Thomas remade church history in his own image, but that's another story. That's true. That's, that's, <laughs> and that's a good, and Mueller makes that critique of Carl Bart. Um, mm. but on, on Aquinas, he's, he's very clear. He might, what he might do is he might, he poses a question and then he'll present maybe six or seven of the best reasons, uh, for the opposite viewpoint, right. and then he'll give you usually one or two paragraphs in the middle, broadly laying out his, his own answer to the question, right. and then he answers uh, precisely point by point every, every point that his opponent uh, would put forth. But I mean, he, he fills volumes on this, not only in the two Summas, um, but also in his dispute, for my own interest on doctrine of God, his disputed, his disputed questions on the power of God which is you can get the full text available online in a in a nice English translation, uh, is is really a, a stimulating piece of scholarship. But he has disputed questions on truth, um, disputed questions on evil. Um, so all all of these all of these things are done in the same scholastic method, which is to pose a question, mm. opposing answers, his own position, and then the opponent answered point by point. Mm. Um, sometimes sometimes it's especially for reformed Christians the thing that you might find lacking in some of those discussions is extensive reference to the scriptures at least in terms of exegetical reference he will he will frequently reference texts of scripture um and it will be obvious if you look up the text why he does but he's not he's not really working in a in a highly sophisticated uh exegetical period in church history uh, no. that's not in itself uh, reason to write him off though
2: now have you looked at any of his commentaries on scripture to see how he does do do uh Jesus? <coughs> i've not so i mean
1: uh, my my knowledge of his commentary on scripture is very superficial. it tends to be it, compared to someone like calvin Calvin's far superior sure, but he's uh, also
0: three hundred years later but right.
1: well he
2: probably i'm assuming that Thomas accepts the quadriga. Yeah, he does. The fourfold sense. Yes. So there would be uh, that that element you'd have to deal with. Mm -hmm. His commentaries on Scripture are being published. Uh, There's a company out of Albany, New York... Okay. That uh, has been doing them
0: well. Sp- speaking, we we've spoken briefly on on the, the the intellectual context in terms of method being scholasticism. What was the intellectual context in terms of I don't know philosophy or what was going on? Were there any huge developments at the time of Thomas that that really impacted his his study and his approach?
1: Yeah, I think not. I mean, the the monumental thing that happened just before Thomas is born is that. That Aristotle comes to the West in Latin uh, via the translations of uh, Islamic philosophers, mm-hmm. yeah, Ibn um,
0: Rushd or uh, Averroes, or some, Avicenna, some people uh, say Avarosh.
1: <laughs> Averroes, uh, Avicenna. Uh, these these uh, scholastic Islamic philosophers right. br- uh, basically give give Aristotle to the West in Latin translations, and so. What's happening for Thomas that might not have been going on for someone like Augustine is that Thomas Thomas has uh, extensive material uh, uh, in Latin of Aristotle. Yeah, whereas I, was, I was
2: trying to remember what Augustine would have had.
1: Um, his Aristotelianism would basically have been imbibed from the remnants of it in the Neoplatonists. Right. Uh, which is a kind of hybrid. But there were like Italian, two major you know. texts, maybe I, I, I forget.
0: But yeah. even for for um, that Thomas, available. that was still that was. Uh, there's there's questions as to how much Aristotle they actually had because they had translations, but sometimes you were getting Plotinus in there, or um, you know mixes. So you got to question at at times the veracity of the translations they had. They might have been pseudo- pseudonymous at, at points, right? Right. So there's, there's, a,
2: there's a there's a discussion over how much of it was really Aristotle. Well, regardless,
0: it had a massive impact on their thinking, yeah. and, and Aristotle's yeah. philosophy of causality, um, universals and particulars, all sorts of things, had a huge impact on Thomas, which in turn had a huge impact on Christian Church.
1: Well, and the, I mean, I think the question in the mind of the Christian is, um, so so what? If Aristotle is now available to the Western Church, I mean, what what difference is that going to make in theology? Is it is 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 the advent of some uh, ancient Greek philosopher, uh, you know, or the re-advent of an ancient Greek philosopher, of really that great importance? I, I mean, we might put it in terms in these terms: if if we have the Scripture and the Scriptures are sufficient, uh, how could the how could the appearance of of translations from an ancient philosopher be that important uh, to Christian philosophy? This is something we've we've discussed before, yeah. and I, we have to be careful right now not to not to digress right. uh, into that as a full discussion. But I th- I think the answer is that Aristotle has Aristotle has raised uh, some very some very important questions uh, that that Christians have something to say about. Um, the Scriptures, the scripture sufficient as they are, we don't always appreciate the full sufficiency of Scripture until someone asks us or poses some very good questions. Um, and I think, I think Aristotle poses some very good questions to the mind of Thomas Aquinas. Mm. Um, not, not where he takes Aristotle and, as it were, modifies Christian theology, uh, though some have accused him of doing that, Basically, Hellenizing uh, Hellenizing the Christian tradition. Uh, it it's not it's not that we subject Scripture to philosophy, but that some of the questions. Re- and it's not also not I should say it's not allowing philosophy to set the agenda either. It's not saying that philosophy determines what are the important questions, but it's simply to say that as the as a as a pagan Aristotle looks on the world and he makes a lot of he makes a lot of. Sound observations in thomas's in thomas 's opinion, but Thomas wants to understand how those uh, how those sound observations can be better accounted for uh, from a christian from a Christian perspective,
0: now, s- speaking of Thomas though with his nature, grace, dualism, or distinction, he can look at somebody like Aristotle and see that he has arrived at, at quite correct philosophy. Based on the light of nature, isn't that, similar isn't that to the,
1: the way case? that Augustine looked at Plato. Mm. Right. Um, the other thing I was yeah. going to
2: say: one of the things that makes Thomas controversial in his day, probably less so now, seven hundred and some years after the fact, is that uh, Platonic philosophy was the reigning paradigm in the Christian in in, in terms of influences, philosophical influences. Yes. And so Thomas is rocks the boat by making Aristotle more uh, significant. In in terms of drawing from his uh, philosophy, and there's all sorts of reasons for that, that are reasons that are still of interest to us. Uh, and we're, again, we're getting into that whole discussion of uh, common grace and natural revelation. Sure. And why why would Aristotle be of interest? And and basically, that's why uh, because Aristotle was made in God's image, lived in God's world, and yeah. reflects upon the revelation of God in that world. Now,
0: Thomas held that, that there are certain qualities of God's nature that one could arise at uh, just from applying natural unaided reason to uh, creation. Um, I'll list those briefly. God is not bodily. He's not material, not a compound. He is his own essence. He's perfect, good, intelligent, volitional. He's the creator, and he is providential. This is a big list of things that one, by natural unaided reason, uh, one can learn about God. Well, how is that possible? I mean, we would have problems with that now,
1: right? And that I mean, when you when you bring up the question of unaided reason, you're probably, you're raising one of the uh, the major areas of critique from the reform perspective of Thomas Aquinas. Right. Is Thomas's commitment to this notion of of man know, knowing uh, truly by unaided reason? Um, it, it gets into the question of of what counts as revelation um, and there's and when Thomas develops his natural theology and and the Thomas who follow him uh, he he believes that natural theology can proceed basically by the by the on the principles of the basic soundness of man's intellect, and he doesn't give an account of how the fall uh, might have affected or distorted. Uh, the intellect of man. And he also doesn't give an account of the place of God's revelation in the in the natural order, um, so that revelation is typically relegated to special and scripturated revelation or in a Catholic mystical understanding, uh, direct revelation through through some sort of ecstatic experience. Uh, but he doesn't he doesn't allow uh, that all of creation is god's revelation and yet i think that implicitly implicitly he can't get away from the sense that that every fact is what it is as created uh, because thomas is very interested in in causality and and he his his conclusion is that that the only ultimate cause can be uh, a self-subsistent eternal god the, god the god that we find in scripture
2: but how, how would he end uh, this is- I haven't given a lot of thought to this, but given the Aristotelian notion that the effect reflects the character of the cause, how could you have what Van
1: Til would call brute facts? Yeah, that's interesting, yeah. I mean, Thomas Thomas is not uh, as committed to, and this is, as I read him, he's not as committed to brute fact as some of his followers are. Um, and I, But I do think that that notion of brute fact can be found there uh, in Thomas. When he, anytime he talks about something discovered by natural unaided reason rather than by revelation, when he contrasts uh, the, the knowledge of the external world uh, to the knowledge that we have by revelation, uh, I think he's implying a notion of, of brute fact, which in a certain sense cuts against his very commitment to the idea that every fact is what it is as a created fact right. and that every fact uh as a fact speaks with a voice declaring its creator I mean, he's very he's very committed to that notion
2: now uh what is his notion of uh okay say he's he's commenting on Paul's opening chapter of Romans how does he understand Uh, Does he have a notion of natural revelation?
1: This isn't, I don't think that he would, I'm not ready to say no because there's so much in Thomas, but generally speaking, you don't find him talking about natural revelation. So
2: natural theology is just another way of talking about philosophy as it relates to God. That's right, yeah, that's right. So there's no underpinning, there's no underlying natural revelation in his understanding as far as you can tell, up to this point, what you've read. No
1: under no underpinning natural revelation, but, but he does believe that through special revelation, especially the text in Romans 1, that we can understand how natural theology is possible. Uh, so this is an interesting thing. He doesn't believe that natural theology proceeds from natural revelation. He believes it simply proceeds unaided from reason. its unaided reason, observing the world. Okay. Um, now, he, but he does believe that what it's doing when it does that, what unaided reason is doing, is accountable uh, in terms of in terms of divine. Is only accountable in terms of the fact that God caused all these things to so be. So, in a sense, he does
2: have a natural, does believe in a natural revelation of sort. It's just right. the terminology may not be there. I've, now, and I think this
1: is where we would disagree on the first principles of the first principles of of inquiring about God apart from the scripture.
2: Now I would also ask, um, what about, what is his under, okay, if he doesn't have a natural revelation idea, or at least it does not appear, it's not clear, then that would make sense. W- what, what do you do with? um, here, let me see if I can get at this idea. Uh, natural revelation is understood, uh, in our con- in our circles to, t- there are usually two approaches one is what is called uh, content innate natural revelation and capacity innate natural revelation. He would seem to lean more toward capacity. Yeah, that's innate right. Revel- natural revelation: the idea is that man, by reflecting upon creation, extrap right. or infers God's existence from nature. Whereas those who would, like myself, who would hold to content innate, natural revelation, actually believe that God implants revelation that is content rich into, and that's why that's why
1: we don't that's why we would reject this whole idea of unaided reason Uh, because there's no such such thing as unaided reason. Uh, Reason, in as much as it even is reason. Is, is a function of man as imago Dei, um, so, that, so that the very first actions uh, of our reason are themselves uh, theological revelations, right. uh, that, man, that man, as in the image of God, and everything that he is as man in the image of God... Including, even prior to sin. It, right, even prior to sin, include, yeah. including the function of his intellect, uh, even corrupt as it is after the fall... The very function of the intellect uh, is itself uh, revelatory and conveys real content. It's not, it's not a possible subject of inquiry that we can extrapolate from and arrive at the knowledge of God, Wait, but where, that itself where, conveys that knowledge.
2: Where do you think he got his notion of the nature of unaided reason? Is, the, is that from Aristotle, or is that, or is that a, theory, a, a a complex a series of sources, or is it from a defective Christian theology that he inherits apart from Aristotle? Right, because all this, the is also, this is
0: also prior to the Enlightenment, of course, so yeah. that, that's an interesting question.
2: I'm just curious as to yeah. what,
1: what is the basis for his idea of unneeded reason? I don't know. I mean, I don't know in terms of, I, I do think we could say at least at least that it is a defective element of his theology, because there is there is a sense in which Thomas, under really under underemphasizes uh, the depravity of man so much so that we, from a Calvinistic standpoint, we would say he he rejects uh, total and radical depravity. So he, although
2: he would have seen himself as an Augustinian, right? That's right. He departs from Augustine at that point. At least, at to.
1: least, in ter- he at least appears to, in terms of what, in terms of what unaided reason can perform. Just to that extent, he seems to depart from the Augustinian notion of total depravity. Hmm.
0: Um, well, and, uh, th- those are interesting points about Thomas. But uh, speaking of you know that unaided reason, uh, he posited five ways of proving God. Uh, Thomas oftentimes comes up when we discuss apologetics because he's most known for what we might call the cosmological argument. Uh, But these are five ways uh, in which one can approach uh, the natural world and, in turn, prove that God exists, according to Thomas. The first being motion, uh, based on that Aristotelian philosophy, how did anything in the universe get moving? If something is moving, something must have, you know, because the natural state of things is at rest, uh, there must have been a first cause. The second is efficient causality, uh, and, and that being you can't have an infinite regression of causes, So wherever that series started is we call God. The third is possibility and necessity, Um, you know, that he argues from contingency to necessity. And so a contingent being presupposes a necessary being. So there must be some necessary being that's not contingent upon anything else that we call God. Uh, the fourth being gradation, or these levels of being, or grades of, of existence, I suppose, and then finally governance of the world, which is actually yes, exactly, very a popular argument nowadays, especially in the light of intelligent design, right. the teleological argument, that uh, when we look at the world, we can see that there's something, something, or someone that governs right. it and that has designed it. So now
2: there's two ways of reading Thomas on those five ways. Uh, and maybe uh, James can uh,
0: No, I'm I'm going
1: to let you do this because I know this <laughs> is your
0: Well, this is the Well, no, they're just historically you,
2: It has to do with the um notion of understanding the infinite regress, right? Or or it has to do with um is is Thomas to arguing that God is at the end of a backward uh chain of events or is he arguing for God's upholding the whole series? Of of uh, cause the the all the links in the chain. Look. So you can be he can be interpreted to be God is at the beginning of a self sustaining chain uh, of cause and effect. Or he's arguing, probably more accurately, maybe James can chime in here. He's actually arguing not just for God's at the beginning, but God right. is all not along, simply deistic, upholding also. the whole process, the and then, whole. And you chain. can see
0: that in his governance. Also,
2: um, I was trying to remember who I read that brought that raised that issue that that uh, uh, it, he's not merely arguing for God at the beginning, but God all, along the whole process.
1: Well, I mean, he does have. I, I mean, this is the interesting thing when you come to the five way. He does on on that question. He does have a strong doctrine of providence. Um, the pro, the providence of God is upholding not not only as creator but as conserver is the language that he likes. Um,
0: Sustainer, we might.
1: So I think we would have to say from other aspects of his theology that he certainly upholds not just a kind of spinning things out into, into motion, but a sustaining of those things all along. And, and this comes up especially in his discussions of existence. God is the cause of all being, um, and that in a, cert- in a particular way, everything that is non-divine, which is everything beside God, um, is potentially uh, can potentially be annihilated yeah. uh, and it can be annihilated simply by god's withdrawing of the Proverbs. act of being yeah, uphold, uh, uphold. of the upholding the existence so there is uh, there is this idea that God is the conserver of all things because God not only grants b- grants existence to begin with but God. Conting, it continues it not by creation, but yeah. by conservation. The reason I, I mention
2: it. that is because some of the criticisms of Thomas assume the more deistic notion. Uh, and I forget, it's been a while since I, I read on the topic, but there, if you take into consideration not only creation, but conservation or preservation, maybe it changes the, the, the flavor of the argument and the kinds of criticisms that can be brought against it.
1: I think sometimes the criticisms brought against Thomas's five ways are brought by people who are expecting more out of the five ways than Thomas ever intended uh, to deliver. And, I mean, realistically, Thomas doesn't... There's no pun on the realistic. I know he's a realist, but <laughs> the the uh, in in his theology, there's not a lot of discussion of the five ways. Um, it's no, it's there? mentioned. It's really only specifically mentioned a few times. It's circumscribed. Uh,
2: very circumscribed.
1: That's right. But that doesn't mean that it's that doesn't mean that they're insignificant. But it means that if you really want to understand what he's doing in each of the five ways, you have to read extensively his discussions of. Finality, his discussions of motion, his discussions of 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 causation, and in and what he's doing is he's not he's not proving five different things about God. He's really coming uh, at the one question of God as first cause in five different ways. Right. Um, so the fi- the five ways are are five. Variations of what is a single proof, and and the whole question of whether what he understood by proof is is debatable as well, because when when Thomas comes through his when he gives us the short version uh, of his five ways, and he comes to the conclusion uh, that that all things there can't be an infinite regress of 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 causes, and we come to the first cause, and he and he concludes, and that we call God. Uh, the question of a modern reader might be well, why don't we call that the flying spaghetti monster? Yeah. <laughs> uh, why? What do you mean that that we call God? It's
2: presupposing his whole discussion of the issues, right? It, right. And you can't abstract the arguments. Uh, I was going to say the... Uh, yeah, it went right out of
1: my head. And, well, no, no, no single proof uh, is, is intended by Aquinas to stand on its own, and no single proof is... And, and and the proofs aren't nearly an aggregate uh, of proofs, sort of um, adding weight to the argument. But the proofs, in, the proofs, seem to assume a whole body of divinity, uh, which is interesting. I think which I think,
2: raises the question
1: of whether they were ever meant to be apologetic. Don't you think? Right, because we tend to think of proof, and our automatic thought is proofs to convince the agnostic and the atheist. Right. Yes. Uh, Thomas, in all likelihood, never never knew an agnostic or an atheist.
2: Right, because uh, I, of the context in which he because lived. the
1: context in which he lived, in which everyone was at least nominally Christian, uh, Christian uh, and the only other the only other non Christians, the 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 Gentiles uh, caught in the Muslim, summa right. were were Muslims. Right. Uh, we we would tend to, I mean, we would tend to. Ca- Broadly classify Muslims as as monotheists. So, in a certain sense, the d- the debate as it is today with say neo atheism or something like that is is not the apologetic context for Aquinas.
2: Now he 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 states them uh, in both the Summa Theologia and the Summa Contra Gentiles.
1: Right, because those are written just a few right. years apart. It's
2: it's the Summa Contra Gentiles which probably gives them their apologetic context because in the in that that's meant to be a manual for missionaries approaching muslims uh, probably in spain
1: in spain because spain, spain is because spain is is uh kind of battling that whole turkish right. influence
2: um, so he's and a, he, and and how the context i think gets set is that at the in the opening of the summa contra gentiles uh he argues well with the with the Christian heretic, you can use the New Testament. With the Jew, you can use the Old Testament. But with the Muslim, you can't use either, so you must use uh, reason. And that's probably why the, the the proofs are then understood to be some sort of an argument against, not an atheist, but a, a, a different kind of theist. <laughs> but that doesn't that change
1: the arguments too, the, the, the fact that you're not dealing with an atheist? It It does, and it changes the whole... It changes the whole um let's say this pre presuppositions uh behind the proofs because Thomas brings his own presuppositions to the proofs. the proofs are intended uh the proofs are intended for uh you know snarky students in the <laughs> university who you know who raise these questions they love these disputed questions, so the proofs are to the proofs are to answer students of divinity on one hand uh, and on the other uh to to equip missionaries uh, that were that were dialoguing with uh, Islamic opponents now, uh, in southern Europe.
2: Um, what was I going to say? The uh, the the uh, if they're not therefore uh, proofs in in the strictest sense. What what are they?
1: They they are way they are ways. I think uh, philosophically of. Articulating uh, what truths about God that we find in Scripture, no single one of those truths uh, saying everything that we need to right. say uh, about God. But even as even as Reformed Christians, we wouldn't just like with a lot of Thomas's natural theology. I think we wouldn't disagree with the conclusions. No, we, I wouldn't. I or wouldn't. even necessarily with uh, the reasoning process the context, by which he comes. Right? It, right it's the, it's the context and it's the it's the uh it's the assumptions it's the assumption that that man's intellect is basically sound and can and can right. follow this reasoning and isn't going to in a hostile way uh suppress the truth and unrighteousness now, I have, think he thinks too well of men is there um
2: very often when I read the proofs i think there's an assumption that 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 his uh interlocutor will not will not be happy with an infinite regress and yet in our day and age uh postmodernists especially seem to be perfectly happy to settle with an infinite regress in terms of well he'll you know thomas will say well we we don't want an infinite regress so we must stop somewhere
1: well the reason the reason he can assume that the interlocular interlocutor doesn't want an infinite regress is because he assumes that the interlocutor believes in god as the as the first and sole principle of <coughs> all of all being um he's he's assu- he 's assuming um, he 's assuming the not the non absoluteness and the non ultimacy of the world and he's he 's assuming that whoever he's he 's interacting with agrees with that too of course no nobody's going to want to say that the that, that the world is uh, that that the, princip- that the sufficient reason of the world is in the world itself, that the world itself doesn 't offer the sufficient reason for its existence uh, to him to him that 's self evident because if you conclude that the world that the world in itself, all creation in itself, contains in itself the sufficient reason not only for its nature but for its very existence then you've, then you 've at that point displaced God with the world. Uh, and and you can give up your you can give up all worship of God, uh, and you might as well begin to be a worship naturer i mean a, a pagan that thomas a kind of pagan that Thomas himself had never met, and a kind of pagan that christianity wasn 't really even encountering in the west at that time they weren 't encountering a kind of a kind of radical pagan naturalism that now uh you know via via um Mass communication you can find all over the world and has, and has inserted itself even into traditionally Judeo-Christian societies. Thomas wasn't facing this. A kind of naturalist pagan was only, was only something he would have to have imagined, uh, because the great threat in their day was Islam. And, of course, Islam would feel the weight of that argument, the ultimacy of the world. Um, and you get into these debates about the eternality of matter and the eternality of the world because well, he believed
2: that you couldn't prove the creation ex nihilo philosophically, right?
1: That's right. He did. He, he did.
2: That would be
1: it. Would rely upon special revelation. You would have to know. Uh, you would have to know that creation, that temporal creation, uh, out of nothing. Uh, you'd have to know that from special revelation. That would be his. Basically, the the laws of physics. As such, don't reveal to you uh, the nature of the absolute beginning of the world. That that would be Thomas's that would be Thomas's opinion. Um, that doesn't mean though that he denies the absolute beginning of the world. No, he he affirms. It. He, he affirms. You can't get
2: it from science. What we would say, science. Right. Uh, and I I think
1: that's a. This is maybe digressing a bit, but I think that's an interesting point for Thomas to raise because it it seems that. It seems that he might have something to say uh, to some creation scientists today and I, I know there's differing views on this even in the evangelical and reform world um, for myself i i'm I'm a, I'm a literal six day guy um, many of my mentors and professors right. uh, aren't but the the question that I think he raises that's important for the christian for the, for the creation science world is to to really examine uh how much how much you're trying to prove on the principles of physics alone um and i think that's that's an important well that was the question point. i was
2: going to raise is thomas is, uh, would thomas argue that way now uh, has there been a change in the understanding uh, given like big bang theory and all that would he make the same? Would he say well, the same thing? I think he. The,
1: w- I think he would because he yeah. would argue against. He would argue against the philosophy of evolution that the same laws of physics that don't reveal the absolute nature of the beginning of the world on the Christian account uh, don't, reveal don't reveal the it, absolute right. nature of the beginning of the world on any other well, naturalist account either. Right. It's not something attainable by he, the he laws. Of he physics. would have been familiar
2: with the idea of evolution from from ancient Greek philosophy. Sure. Darwin didn't invent the idea. Right, he's just one of the better known.
1: Now, with Thomas's argument—I mean, as much as I say creation scientists uh, might want to consider and engage his argument—so uh, would so would every form of anti-Christian naturalism uh, need to engage his argument? Because his argument is that that physics alone is a limited science. We can deal with data that we have, derive certain conclusions, but when we're speaking of when we're speaking of absolute origins. Uh, the 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 absolute origins of things cannot be had solely on the laws of uh, physical science,
2: which we would say the same thing, right?
1: I think we would. Yeah, and I think, cre- and and to be fair, I think creation scientists would say the same yeah. thing. They would say, "No, you're right. I have to presuppose the scriptural revelation." In fact, Thomas would say the scriptural revelation is sufficient reason. For explaining the absolute beginnings of the world, so you know that, that brings was,
0: us to the to the point where we could say, you know, a wholesale rejection of Thomas is just not something we want to do. Now we know that in the later nineteenth century, uh, I believe it was eighteen seventy nine, right? At the uh, uh, what happened in eighteen seventy
1: nine? Well, this is interesting because the question is, well, why are we in the early twenty first century? Why are we still thinking about Thomas Aquinas? Uh, I I thought we had. I thought we had done away with scholasticism. Uh, in, in 1879, something interesting happened in the Roman Catholic Church. The Pope, and I, I never remember which one. It might be Leo XIII, I can't remember, uh, delivered an encyclical. And his encyclical was basically a, a call to arms among academic Roman Catholics to, to reappropriate Thomas Aquinas um, as, a, as a defense against the inroads of modernism. Uh, mo- modernism was the great crisis of Christianity in the 19th century, and and it's and it's basically the crisis today in the form of postmodernism. It's the same, it's the same attack on orthodoxy, and <clears throat> the Pope was concerned that uh, that the Church have a robust defense against modernism, and so his call was to a serious study and reappropriation of Thomas Aquinas. What, for that. What, what was it about
2: modern? Was there any uh, central element in modernism that he was targeting?
1: I think, I think particularly it's, it's getting down to first principles, uh, mo- modernism's account of, of the way things are of reality. And that's, I mean, Thomism tries to account for reality as such, uh, Modernism's account of reality was essentially pagan, um, and liberal, liberal Protestantism's account of reality had become essentially pagan in its first principles. Uh, God's ultimacy, God's transcendence had been, had been c- compromised out of existence, really, at that point. Li- liberal Christianity could not account for the world in terms of God alone. So we're we're
2: getting into st- things like universals and particulars, nominalism. In, yeah, that's
1: right. It's 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 throwing us back on the questions of the medieval age that Thomas addressed in such a detailed and sophisticated way. What came as a result of the Pope's encyclical was was really uh, a worldwide movement among Roman Catholic scholars to to answer the Pope's call to arms uh, and reappropriate Thomas for the modern era. Some did, some did that in a way very faithful to Thomas. Others did it in a way very unfaithful and imaginative, and they've distorted Thomas. And the school of Neotomism arose in the 20th century. Neotomism is is by no means a a unified movement. Uh, Neo-Thomists fight viciously amongst themselves. Uh, all, all, all the while, the Pope holds the real knowledge and the truth of the answer, but he just won't tell us, I guess. Uh, but uh, But, what happened for reformed interest is that a number of <coughs> a number of conservative Roman Catholics um, and i think I think important to emphasize we would have our our severe and radical disagreements and we 're not attempting in saying this any kind of reproachment uh, toward the divisions with Rome, those remain as they 've always been, but inasmuch as they sought to reappropriate Thomas on things like the doctrine of God and answer in answer to the threat of modernism. Uh, there's a there's a lot of substantial uh small c Catholic traditional Christian orthodoxy that that was uh that was really articulated in a sophisticated and up to date way when I say up to date I don't mean modified but in but in response to uh modernism and all its varieties now
2: there's a, a book out there uh, by is a Hugh Kerr called after Thomas which kind of Fergus Kerr. Yeah, thank you. Fergus Kerr yeah. that that um delineates the uh, various schools of Thomistic interpretation.
1: Yeah, and that's and that's a good survey. Uh the one thing that's frustrating with with Kerr after you've read some neo Thomists, is that it just feels very surveyish. Right. It it lacks some of the some of the substance. I'm I'm thinking of some of the early 20th century uh and mid 20th century French uh Thinkers like uh, Reginald Garrigou-Lagrange, uh, who has a two-volume work on God, His existence and attributes. Um, y- Reformed Reformed Christians will not like the first principles of natural theology because they're essentially the same as Thomas, mm. uh, but we but we will like his details uh, on a lot of the a lot of the aspects of God's nature um, as supreme and as ultimate. Uh, it's it's a very it reads as a very exalted uh, and transcendent view of God. Um, in fact, I, I was first put onto some of these neo by reading uh, Cornelius Van Til, right. and I'm sure Van Til would love to hear that he sent someone to read Neotomas, but <laughs> but that's who Van Til read. Yes, if, you, if you read the footnotes of a, lot of, his, of a lot of his work, he clearly is spending a lot of time reading men like Jacques Maritain, Etienne Gisson, or Gilson, uh, depending on how, <laughs> how you want to treat that, you know, Germanically or uh, romantically, how you want to pronounce his name, I guess. But uh, men like Gisson and Maritain and and Garagu LaGrange uh, were the kinds of men that, that Van Til was reading. Now, were they
2: reflective of what we know as neo-scholasticism? They were. I mean, Because these, there's these, also the transcendental Thomist school.
1: Right, and the these were these were these were neo-scholastics. Um maybe if you picked characters, uh, they would be sort of the anti yes. uh crowd. Um R-
2: Rahner,
1: Rahner really and is really a synthesis of Thomas and modernism. Right. Um whereas whereas Gisone and Maritain and and especially someone like garrigou Lagrange, these these French Neo Thomas were were radically anti-modernistic. Uh, an American right. writer that I would add to that is James Collins. Okay. James Collins' uh, God and Modern Philosophy, uh, still an important book to read today, if you can get your hands on a copy. And and much of what you would read in there would be, uh, would be Augustinian, Thomistic, and would actually sound a lot like Turretin. If you've read right. Turretin, it would sound as if someone were taking Turretin in applying him to the modern theological scene in the twentieth century, well what I thought
2: found interesting in my own reading was the the, the transcendental Thomists, like Rahner accused the neo scholastics like Gison and uh, garlo Lagrange and Maritain, of reading into Thomas the nature grace scheme were you, were you aware of that accusation
1: uh i have i haven't delved into okay. the conflicts the, between the neo-scholastics it, right, and the, the transcendentals. The, the, the tra- transcendental
2: Thomists believe that that, that nature-grace scheme that Van Til and, uh, and Bavinck and Kuyper were, were critical of, they say that not in Thomas, but is actually in in the neo-scholastic which is interesting. I mean, it's just an interesting...
1: I mean, I can see their point because the neo-scholastics do, do, uh, uh, um, uh, Gisson, Maritain, and Gregory Lagrange do stress, and, and, and an American like uh, Fulton Sheen, uh, they do stress the the ability of unaided reason in a way that, that we should find offensive uh, as as reformed christians the
2: problem is the transcendental thomas they they may get make a point but then they foul things up themselves so right if you're looking for the the <laughs> the biblical answers you're, you're going to find these folk right on some things and wrong on many others both sides so you say a pox on both houses
1: i i would i would but in terms of the actual substance of what they write um, it's, it, well, it's, it's sort of like this. I, I can look at someone like Fulton Sheen and say, uh, I, I disagree with his first principles of natural theology, but as he articulates the doctrine of God in response to modernism uh, and skepticism, uh, there's there's a lot of substance in there that you would tend to agree with. So full hit, Machine was a scholar
2: not just a,
1: a not just a a pop, media, yeah that's a media right no not just presence. a pop that's right. and he was I mean, he was very, I mean you as you read him though he ha, he's very poetic you know and he right. he reads almost like a popular writer but he's he's steeped in he's steeped in Thomism. Um I would say in the whole scheme of that I wouldn't put I wouldn't I wouldn't put a pox on uh on Gisson and Maritain, in just the same way that I would on Rhauner. No, 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 uh, that's correct. When because mean, their first principles are wrong, but their doctrine of God, we would have to say, uh, in all truth, is is uh, correct in right. in an overwhelming number of ways that we can appreciate. He's, whereas he's, whereas Rahner's is incorrect in so many ways. Uh, in in <laughs> in, in, more, in so many ways that we right. would detect. Gisson,
2: of yeah. course, has uh, written some uh, well known books on the the uh, philosophy of Thomas Augustine in medieval philosophy. Yeah, his, his, spirit,
1: standard, his spirit, spirit of work. medieval philosophy is still quoted in, in modern scholarship, uh, even today, because it is, it is really that, that penetrating and insightful. And, and that was actually reading the introduction to systematic theology uh, by Van Til, where he quotes, there's a section in there where he quotes Gerson's spirit of medieval ph- uh, philosophy, uh, extensively. In fact, the the quotation runs on for pages in the old typeset uh, edition. And um, there are times in reading that extensive quotation where you're not even sure whether you're reading Jason or Van Til. And, and Van Til seems to indicate that he's he's in extensive agreement with jasson in fact it goes on for pages and pages and i can remember being confused of whether i'm reading Gisone or reading vantil it sound, i mean their point sounds right. the same and then and then drops something about natural theology and unaided reason and then vantil just skewers him you know right. and and i think vantil's point was you can't you can't account for you know these three pages of quotations that are excellent with this principle of natural theology and unaided reason. You just can't account for it. So his criticism of Jason is not of Jason's doctrine of God. His criticism is of Jason's uh, doctrine of the knowledge of God. Van Til's point is epistemological, not theological proper, Um, which which leads me to the conclusion that Van Til actually seems to like what he's reading. Uh, for quite a few pages in Gasson, and then gets upset that Gasson, you know, loses the revelatory principle by which sure, he comes sure. to that knowledge.
2: So Van Til clearly was familiar with Roman Catholic and Thomistic studies. Uh, you know the story of his uh, traveling by boat, uh, I guess, over to Europe, or coming home from Europe and, and sharing the boat ride with a Roman Catholic, hmm. who who uh, commented that uh, one of the differences that, that he found with Van Til as opposed to other Evangelical was that Van Til actually knew what he was talking about. He was familiar with Roman Catholic theology, so I find that interesting.
1: So it raises the question: Should we, should we be um, familiar with Roman Catholic theology today?
2: The answer would be yes, because it, just in dealing with the average Roman Catholic, uh, Roman Catholicism is about as monolithic as
1: Protestantism, right? Which means it's not. It's not. It's it's right. It's it's full of various schools of thought, and so, and some of those have some things to to offer us. And I yeah. say that carefully, but just maybe maybe make it make an analogy uh, in the same way that the Protestant scholastics of the 16th and 17th century looked back at medieval Thomism and modified the Thomism right. to to uh, according to their reformed principles of revelation and these other these other. Distinctly Reformed contributions. I think in the in the same way, maybe the time is ripe for 21st century Reformed theologians, pastors, interested lay people to to look at 20th century Thomism and modify some of that uh, for our purposes. Not not to take it over on its own principles. And that's what Van Til is saying. He's saying we can't we can't accept your orthodoxy on your principles. I think he's saying you you can't account for your own orthodoxy, on your principles of natural theology. But that's not a denial of of the soundness of a lot of their observations.
2: Right. Which, means,
1: yeah, which means you can't
2: throw out the baby with the bathwater. No, no. Now do you, um, maybe in conclusion, uh, are there contemporary Thomist scholars that you would recommend uh, for our, our listeners?
1: Yeah, the the two that come to mind that are Roman Catholics are uh, Eleanor Stump in her volume just simply entitled Aquinas and the subtitles Arguments of the Philosophers, uh-huh. uh, published by Rutledge. The hardback edition uh, will, will cost you this month's rent, uh, but the paperback is, is affordable. It's, it's not so much a study. It's a study of Thomas, but it's a study of Thomas in light of the rise of analytic philosophy. Right. I say this with a caveat. It's not for everyone.
0: <laughs> um, and even even
1: for those whom it is for, it may take you a while to appreciate exactly why uh, it's so important. But it is it is a monumental book. Now, Eleanor um, Stump
2: was a, a student of Norman Kretzmann.
1: Who's an atheist, interestingly.
2: Taught at Cornell.
1: Uh, yeah, Cor- yeah Nor- Kretzmann taught at Cornell. Kretzmann is another major, though deceased now, major modern Thomistic scholar, sort of like Anthony Kenny. The enigma of Kenny and Kretzmann is that reitzmann 's an atheist, supposedly reconverted or something at the end of his life, back to his Christian heritage, but who knows uh, and And Anthony Kenny uh, is is an atheist turned agnostic, which is to say he 's just what he 's always been a uh, skeptic um, and th- though they have insights on the texts of Thomas and the arguments of Thomas. Um, they they tend to not enter in appreciatively, um, sympathetically the way that Eleanor Stump does, and I should say that Eleanor Stump has has had some uh, useful interaction with Scott Oliphant in his own in his own recent work. Uh, she's been she's been helpful in dialoguing right. with him. She's at St Louis University. She's uh, or did I don't know if
2: she still does. She serves on the board of a uh, Christian Studies Center at uh, Cornell called the Chester, Chesterton House. Right. And uh,
1: the other. She's she's an important one. I would say the Cambridge Companion to Aquinas that she edited with Kreitzman is is worth is worth looking at if you want a broad range of really of really solid scholarship. Uh, the other one I would recommend is is John Whipple. Yeah. Um, if you want a study of Thomas as such, I mean just actually Thomas's thought. His book, um, The Metaphysical Thought of Thomas Aquinas is really on par with Stump's book in terms of its, its quality. Um, they're the kind of books that, you know, come out once in a generation. Uh, a few scholars might put out a book like, like these books. Um, but Wh- Whipple and Stump are, are the two that come to mind. A more, a, a more accessible volume introducing Thomas Broadley beside The Cambridge Companion would be um, the book by Brian Davies, um, the thought of Thomas Aquinas, which is an
2: Oxford University
1: right. title. Right, that's right. Yeah, it's an, it's an early '90s uh, volume, but it's the the nice thing of about that book is it is it's probably more readable than Stump or Whipple. Mm. Um, so that would probably be the best comprehensive
0: introduction.
2: Um, now, one thing we didn't discuss today was. The- Thomas's doctrine of analogy—that would be nor, a whole. Nor is a whole. It's epistemology, but
0: yeah. we could have to save those for another time. That would be a time.
2: whole uh, discussion in its own right. Well, yeah, that's, the that's, reason, that's the reason. The right. reason I raised that is because one of the areas where you'll do there's a there's a boatload of books is on under trying to get at Thomas's doctrine of analogy.
1: Sure, and and most of the boatload is not helpful. Right, that's the problem. Um, there's it's a lot of superficial readings and. And people imposing on Thomas what they think he meant by analogy.
2: Going all the way back to Thomas Wheel,
1: otherwise known as Cardinal Cayetan. Yeah, Carl Cayetan. And he's and he's the major Thomistic interpreter, and you have to decide whether he's correct. But you don't really
0: have to decide that if you don't care whether he was correct. <laughs> <Right>.
1: <laughs> oh. You can just go read Thomas and, uh, you know. Well,
0: all, the, all this information will be up on the website. Uh, we'll, we look forward to further discussions on Thomas and his interaction with uh, Reformed Theology, or Reformed Theology's interaction with Thomas, I should say. Uh, so you can visit us at reformedforum.org for that. You can subscribe to our programs. Get them downloaded automatically to your computer whenever they're available. Thank everybody for listening. We hope you join us again in Christ the Center.